Right, so this is Kino Kingdom episode 42, hurtling, hurtling towards that sweet, sweet 50. And um, I, it's been a really busy one for me, Rupert, because I have, obviously we haven't done this for a little while, a couple of weeks, and I've got mm. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 films. All of the highest quality, I assume. It, honestly, there's there's some really good ones, and there's some there's a lot of a lot of mid ranges, but there's a couple I just want to talk about in length, and um and one like one one duo of films I watched with my brother Transvaal has mm. has altered the course of my life. So I cannot really? wait. I cannot Do you wait. You watch Maniac Cop two and three then. Was <laughs> I only need to watch the one with Robert Darby, which was is that two or three? Two and three, I think he's in both. <laughs> they couldn't. They they said bring him back, bring him back. Yeah. Pop the bring hat him back on and make him sit really awkwardly on a chair. <laughs> I wish we need to set some sort of. We should set some sort of Twitter Twitter feed and put pictures of these things up that we reference because yeah. him sitting on that chair. Pictures of high-riding trousers and people sitting awkwardly on chairs. It's a niche pairing, but, you know, it's got to be done. Um, well, obviously, we've got a lot to tuck into. Also, just a little a little heads up for next uh, next week. There'll be a, a bit of a special episode up with someone. It's a, our first ever guest on the show, aside from Tony, Tony Howes. And it's someone who is, due to their background and their calling and their job, they need to be shrouded in secrecy. So mm. we're giving him the code name Laszlo Buckets, and he will be with us live, uh, at, live at the time, in a a cottage somewhere deep, deep in the heart of Wales, and we will be talking about um, Richard Donner and his career. We're literally renting the cottage just to maintain his anonymity. No other reason. We can't, because obviously we're such seminal public figures that if someone sees us yeah. with laszlo buckets they'll they'll think oh i know who that is that's the person yeah and what, what i'm going to do is i'm going to digitally alter his voice it's going to take a while but i'll digitally sort of muffle and alter his voice i'll try and change syllable by well, syllable to something like germanic maybe um but yeah he's going to really alter his voice so no one will no one will know who he is but um are we oh, is it fair to say rupert that i've got more films than you this week so i think if i might. How many have you got then? Um, I fewer. I started counting, but then when you were going into double figures and breaking the twenty barrier, I thought, well, that's not even bother. Well, obviously, I mean, I've got to say because we've had a couple of weeks break between this, that's why I built up all these films. I have been contacted by so many people for sponsorship, and I was going through them. They literally lined up like I could literally do an episode of sponsorship, but. Um, one shone through to, to get to the top of the heap. So this week, we are again sponsored by Celebrity Sex Masks. Does your sex life need some variety? When you're in bed and you look, try it on, does your wife look at you like you've just told her that you prefer Wishmaster 4 to the original? Well, look no further. Celebrity Sex Masks are here to deliver, and we don't mean the mail. Choose from a new range of lifelike rubber versions of Jack Lemon. Terry Wogan, Robert Loggier, Barry Pepper, Alan Titchmarsh, Sam Wanamaker, Robert Darby, Richard Brake, David Patrick Kelly, Haley Joel Osmond, now Peter Falk, 
Jasper Carrot, Jacqueel Haley, Vincent Schiavelli, James Hong, Kevin James, Vince Vaughn, Vanessa Redgrave now, Christopher Walken, Christopher Lambert now, Christopher Lloyd, not that one, Herbert Lom, Martina Navratilova, Clancy Brown, and Larry Drake. And remember the celebrity sex mask slogan. It's not cheating if you are gasping, sweating, and thrusting as you stare into the dead, blank, lifeless latex eyes of celebrity sex mask. And also a bit of a bonus for us. Mm-hmm. If you use the offer code Kino Kingdom Rocks at checkout and get a free hardcore erotic audio cassette read by David Jason in in character as Del Boy of the cult hit homoerotic novel A Touch of Bollocks a story of two young male nurses that fall in love in the operating theatre as they assist the enigmatic Dr. Bertie Chuff in a complex, full scrotal rebuild being performed on actor Nicholas Lindhurst following an accident in which he boots an errant football that had landed in his garden with such vigour that he kicked himself in the face, tearing his testicular sack in the process. And that's CelebritySexMasks.com. It's nice to have a recurring... Sponsorship, I think. It, you know, the fact that we obviously did so well for them that they've come back, come back for more. Yeah. <laughs> they all obviously think that there's some sort of tandem with our um with our the, the, their client base and our listenership. So there's obviously some it's sort an, of correlation. It, yeah. No, but it's a natural dovetail, really, isn't it? Yeah. Um again, uh, I just asked you last time, so it'd be rude not to this time, but out of that list. Um, of hunks which one do you think that you would be more likely to wear the visage of as you thrust desperately above your wife i don't think you mentioned robert's dar did you so no i didn't actually well <laughs> now now that obviously the, the celebrity sex masks celebrity sex masks.com are listening to this they'll probably have like a robert's dar i mean they could even a range of robert's dar because you know when he played conan in tango and cash to you know, mm-hmm. ma- his maniac cop shrouded in darkness. That could uh, mm-hmm. that could be quite yeah. Have a range of it. I, I can't really look past Robert Darby, the pitted visage of Robert Darby. <laughs> well, the good thing about that one is like you could you could make love to your wife, and then as you rolled over on the bed as she lay in ecstasy, you could then strike a cigarette on your own face to like uh, sorry, strike a match on your own face to like the postcoital cigarette. So that's. Yeah. That comes in uh, in two forms. Um, well, I'm going to lurch into my first film then, which is the 2008 uh, horror movie Outpost. This is a bit of a two-minute trashing. There's been a few of those just, just because of the amount of stuff I've got to get through. Yeah. But this is a 2008 British film directed by Stephen Barker. And again, some of these I watched about three weeks ago, so bear with me. And it stars Ray Stevenson, Michael Smiley, and Richard Brake uh, as mercenaries uh, from sort of scattered around the world mostly the uk uh, and they get uh, taken by someone to the, the center of these woods in the middle of england and they uh, descend into this underground bunker where they're told there's a load of it turns out to be so they think it's nazi gold but it, it turns out to be something much more sinister um uh, and oh, i really when i got this when i put this on i was because Ray Stevenson starred in the 2008 version of the Punisher Warzone, and everyone seemed to hate that film apart from me, because uh, mm. I thought it was it was out of all the Punisher films, it was the most sort of starkly true to the comics. Right. 
And Ray Stevenson is a great screen presence. Um, I, I really like him. And I, when I see him in something, I do think, oh, it gives it that little that little bit of pep that draws me to the film. And I, I agree. really he was, he was very good in Rome, the HBO. That was a series, was it? Yeah. 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 Almost of Alice, don't care. But yeah, that's good to know. Exactly. Um, Michael Smiley is another person who is almost like a mark of quality. Um, and it went from like Kill List. And he was in a wonderful film, a wonderful film. Um, I think it's called Come to Daddy with Elijah Wood. And he, oh, yeah. it's one of the, he has one of the best death scenes in cinema history in that film. And I urge you, anyone, to watch Michael Smiley's death scene in, um, in Come to Daddy. And Richard Brake is another one who is kind of a Jackie or Haley presence, where it's that sinister, sleazy dirtiness. Yeah, anyway, there is a bit of Jackie Earl about him, isn't there? The old Richard Brake, born in, I think it was like Aberystwyth as well. Um, I think so. Yeah, it's somewhere in Wales, isn't it? But the, but the, the so the, the film, film is fine it's fine up until they get into the bunker and things kick off and it's i'm not really i'm not going to spoil the events but suffice to say that you know it's it's them getting this job uh ray stevenson is the leader of this this troop of misfit mercenaries getting taken into this world war ii bunker which they discover is an old nazi bunker and what happens is um they get attacked effectively by nazi ghosts right or zombies and the film really lost steam for me when i a lot of the characters are kind of inherently unlikable, um, which is fine because they're kind of well played. Um, mm. But they, it gets to a point where from like the sort of, I'd say, 50 minute mark, they start planning how they're going to take out these Nazi zombies. But it's really clear that they're just immortal. And no matter what they do, they keep getting back up. Uh, so it's mm -hmm. I, I was just I was sitting there thinking, well, you're all going to you're all going to die because they're immortal, aren't they? No matter you've done all these things and they get back up and. It makes no difference to them. So all this like weird planning and this extended um, the final segment of the film where they you know they, they make their last stand against them as they sort of swarm in on the bunker. It, it feels weirdly sort of dry because you think, well, I know you're just doing all these all this planning and setting up these checkpoints and I'm going to do this and that and they're just going to get back up. So <laughs> yeah, that just sounds like a it sounds like a really sort of empty a hollow victory really. Yeah, and and so all the sort of sacrifices, and you think, yeah, I know, I know, you're all going to die, and I'm not going to say what happens, but it it did. I just just think, okay, I like the setup, but the the sort of final third when the action really kicks off, as opposed to all the the character interplay, is almost like the worst part. Um, mm. It's not an uncommon uh, <laughs> model, is it, for a lot of like action horror cinema. Um, also, this film has three sequels. Whoa. I am not going to watch them. And that is um, Outpost, which is on Netflix. Does Ray Stevenson return? I, mean, I... Um, I can have a look for you if you want. I mean, <laughs> you that not key. really that was it, to be honest. Sequels. Sequels, plural. He doesn't. Although, and I don't know how much this says about my expectations. The top five starring cast in the next film, I can I can click on. They've, they're blue hyperlinks. Okay, blue. That's good. <laughs> that's good on Wikipedia. Nothing so... more depressing than a red hyperlink on Wikipedia. <laughs> or indeed, no hyperlink. <laughs> so, that is Outpost 2008 on uh, Netflix, and you know. If you if you want a bit of a throwaway horror fun, 
you'll enjoy the first 50 or 60 minutes and then your interest will like my father when i was a baby go away brilliant uh do you want to do another quickie then I, films to get through. Yeah, I can do another one. This is a 1997 film called City of Industry, which is a noirish crime thriller starring Harvey Keitel, Stephen Dorff, and Timothy Hutton. Um, and the, the, it okay. starts off, and Timothy Hutton has brought in his older brother Harvey Keitel into uh, in, into the gang, which is uh, Stephen Dorff, the driver. Timothy Hutton and Harvey Keitel are going to be the, the bank robbers, and there's an, another dude, which I, I, I forget his name. Um, a Hispanic guy who is there to away Dominguez, who, who is also going to go in there and do the sort of main meat of the bank robbery. His wife is Famke Jansen. And it starts off, they do the bank robbery. And then when they're in the, in a trailer somewhere in Florida, sort of splitting up the money afterwards, Stephen Dorff pulls out a gun and just shoots Timothy Hutton dead, as well as Wade Dominguez and buggers off. Uh, and so the film is effectively Harvey Keitel tracking him down and, and getting revenge. It's this. It's a good film. It is a good film, and it it's a wonderfully '90s film because it's got that scuzzy darkness. I wasn't entirely sure what it was called City of Industry. Um, it's it, it's like a kind of a good title because it is. I mean, the, the end sequence does take place on sort of an oil, oil riggy sort of thing. Harvey Keitel is is the backbone of the film because it's it's really it's really his his thing. And when when the when the the heist goes wrong whether the post section of the heist goes wrong it's very much him coming to terms with the death of his brother and thinking right i'm really going to give Stephen dorff a kick in and Stephen dorff is wonderfully ratty in this film he's a proper little um you know spike head frost tip little brat and um it is good to see harvey Keitel sort of catch up with him and and uh take him down but I will say that Famke Janssen, I don't know much about her beyond sort of Goldeneye, and, and she was in that film I watched, An Eye for an Eye, with uh, John Travolta and his hair a few weeks ago. But she really doesn't seem like she can act in this film. It really doesn't okay. seem like she can act. Um, I, I guess it's a really early one, because it's 97, so it's just after Goldeneye, but it, it, she stands out as awkward in it. And there's a sort of oddly forced sort of... Um, pseudo relation sexual relationship between harvard cartel and, and her and it just it, that doesn't work um like i said the i remember the music being quite funky it's quite a you know a a, a direct nice little thriller but it's not something that's going to stick in the mind too much but I, I when i saw city of industry and i saw harvey cartel i thought is this going to be kind of a post tarantino ripoff but it, it's i think i was pleasantly surprised because it didn't go that flashy cut way it was very direct and it felt very uh small scale which i appreciated so it feels like a bit of a lost night he's not a classic but definitely one if i'd seen it the night i would have thought oh do you know that's a cool film um but i've seen it now and it's still a cool film <laughs> and it's it's enjoyable to hate Stephen dorff as much as you do when you watch this film plus elliot gould rocks up in it briefly city of industry is an actual mm. city really in, yeah in california it's a bit of a clunky title or well quite a blunt title anyway it's literally called city of industry oh fair um, enough then I, I had no idea what it meant but that, that does make a little bit more sense yeah i i thought city of industry might be a name for an actual other city but no it's literally called city of industry um oh, fair enough so it's worth a watch 
correct? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. is It's a good film. Yeah, it's definitely worth a goosey. Okay, look. Just realised we haven't done the Arkansas. Oh right. Oh, do you know? Ooh. I'm glad you mentioned that because I do have um, I do have an entry for this uh, mm-hmm. from our from our audience. Oh, I have to find this now. This is me unprepared. Uh, esteemed audience. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so <clears throat> this is before you have your go. This is going to be an entry from uh, someone in our audience that needs no in introduction other than to be told that their name is um vance clapton okay uh, so vance has said and bear in mind we had to get from carmen ijogo to barry pepper yes carmen ijogo was in metro with eddie murphy he was in trading places with dan Aykroyd who was in Dragnet with Tom Hanks, who was in Saving Private Ryan with Barry Pepper. That's four steps. Yeah. What have you got, Rupert? What have you got at the sleeve? Well, this one was... I was lucky with this one, because... You only film a lot of Will Smith interviews? <laughs> Not... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Scouring Will Smith interviews for a mention of Carmen Ajogo has got nothing to do with him. Um... <laughs> no, I... The only thing I know Carmen Ajogo from is the film Selma, uh, which happens to have an ensemble cast, which includes Giovanni Ribisi, who's in Saving Private Ryan with Barry Pepper. Oh, wow. So what is that? Two steps or three? Steps, I think. Yeah. So Carmen Ajogo in Selma with Giovanni Ribisi, who's in Saving Private Ryan with Barry the Pepper. Barry TP. That's the fewest steps yet with two. So okay. So it's three nil to you now. The audience need to three, really buck up. One? Right? I think I conceded last week, didn't I? Oh, okay. So it's three one. Is it you yeah, you did concede because yeah, because of that Will Smith debacle where you were like, Oh, I didn't uh, I didn't cheat, but I did just read thousands of interviews until he mentioned collateral beauty. <laughs> yeah, I'll never forget the film now. He probably doesn't do that too often in all fairness. <laughs> mentioned that um yeah so over to you then my mon frey well this week i've watched only horror films good so we will start with i mean this is very prime heavy this one because let's face it <laughs> prime has is the place to go for b c or indeed d list horror um so i watched the beyond uh, which is a Lucio Fulci zombie film from 1981. Mm-hmm. It's actually a video nasty in the UK. Um, so it starts off in Louisiana in 1927, and the mob or his mob arrives at the house of this artist, and he's he's crucified for heresy, for spreading the prophecies of some kind of mythical being called Abon. Um, so because in a modern day, a lady buys that same property to turn into a hotel. It is a fixer-upper, to put it mildly. Um, bad things start happening instantly, mostly to the workmen on the site. Like uh, a, a plumber discovers this hidden room under the house and uh, unleashes a terrible entity, terrible murderous entity. Um, so... The lady who's bought this place, she's warned away from the house by a blind woman, which is an idea lifted from Don't Look Now. Um, but she is determined anyway to make a go of it, even though literally people 
dying. But so so anyway, while while people are dying around her, she is uncovering the the legend of Ibon, um, who this artist was going on about. So this is obviously an Italian horror. So you get the usual laughable post dubbing and the crash zooms and the over the top acting and the haphazard editing incongruous whimsical music just apparently random slow-mo and and like a bunch of obviously like italian actors pretending to be deep south natives but looking more like they just walked off the set of sopranos or something so but this being italian you also get the just a bunch of ridiculously enjoyable bonkers visual ideas and some great gore some amazingly unnatural lighting uh kind of rich atmosphere some inventive camera work and it's fairly absurd tone um the kills are especially inventive actually on this one we get like uh people's faces melting uh you get eyes popping out uh you get dog attack and there's even a scene where someone's face is eaten off by a swarm of tarantulas so he literally just eat his eyes, his tongue, everything. I'm not sure that's exactly how they behave in the real world, but you know, there we go. Um, so these the the kind of killings are, they're pretty well staged, I would say. Um, and it's and it it lingers a lot on these kills, like the face melting in particular. It seems to go on for about five minutes, with just someone's skin just peeling off their face. But anyway, yeah, so. And also, I like how it's it's quickly established that basically anyone in the cast is fair game for, to be killed, so no one's safe. So that's quite cool because mm. often in a horror, you can almost you can almost tell the order in which people are going to die, um, but not here. I also like how the kind of she's obviously trying to uncover this legend um, of this mythical individual, and I like how the secrets um, they're literally embedded in the walls of the house itself, so you get like. In secret rooms behind locked doors which are themselves behind walls and that so that's quite cool like peeling away the layers of an onion um in terms of plotting it's pretty rudimentary um it's the usual thing of one person being sort of tuned into the creepy events and just seeming to be hysterical to everyone else um <clears throat> i think some, it made me reflect a little bit on Italian horror because I haven't seen that many of them. Not a massive fan, but something that sometimes like people refer to like the imagery you get in a lot of Italian horror, like Argento and that. It's often referred to as like surreal or dreamlike, and actually I think sometimes it it's just that it doesn't make sense, and the filmmakers thought, oh, that will look cool, like. Is it is it truly surreal and dreamlike, or have they just thought it would look really cool if this happened? Let's throw it in the film. Like for example, like there's a scene in this movie when someone shoots a French door, like obviously a lot of glass, but they obviously shooting outwards, but the glass explodes and flies inwards, um, and kind of rushes towards them and like lacerates their face, and it's like, well, that's a, it's a cool death in that, but it's it's never explained and it's not it's completely inconsistent with any other powers we've seen in the movie so it's just that's a cool death scene fine okay and i guess i guess that's part of the appeal of italian horror as well is that 
incoherence really the final 15 minutes are really quite intense and it does have a pleasingly dark ending um but as i said everything up to that point is pretty incoherent but then that's par for the course really if you've seen like suspiria and phenomena and things like that so yeah it's i mean it's it it's unusually violent um but otherwise pretty standard italian horror fair really and there's nothing else at all you want to say about this film nothing specifically i, I take it you uh <laughs> you found out a, a tidbit that you want to share with the rest of us <laughs> there's nothing about the cast list that you want to say about this film nothing springs to mind no Nope. There's nothing about the actor that plays Dr. Harris in this film that you want to talk about. <laughs> nothing at all. Al Cliver. Oh my goodness. You watched, uh, you were Clivered. You watched a film <laughs> with him in and you didn't notice him. You, Rupert, you've been Clivered, I'm afraid. I'm afraid <laughs> That's what it should be called. That's what it should be called when you watch a film and you had no idea that the person acting in it was the person they were. <laughs> it's like when you mentioned Michael Jeter being the bookkeeper in The Untouchables last week. It's like, <laughs> it's like, I'm not even sure if that's true or not, but now I think to myself, I've been watching Michael Jeter all these years. Yeah. And now I've just let Cliver slip by. Yeah, you've been Clivered with I can't that even one. Think and... of that for characters, to be honest. <laughs> it's probably stubbed anyway. <laughs> so yeah, okay. I'm, I think I've seen the Beyond, but I, I went through a phase of watching a, a lot of Italian horror, like when I was properly boozed up a, a good few years ago, and it just—they mm. all bled into one in my mind. Yes, um, so maybe you were just watching the entire back catalogue of Al Cliver at the time. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I watched um, what's that film I watched? Like City of New York or whatever it was, and uh, and then City of New York. <laughs> what a title! <laughs> Driving in my car down the road, starring Alec Lyther. Um I'm gonna, <laughs> He can't I'm even gonna, do that convincingly. I, if he can't stand in a wardrobe convincingly, there's not much hope. Um, I watched Avenging Angelo. <laughs> I've been wanting to talk about this for a while. To be honest, it's, it's probably Sylvester quite, Stallone. This is 2002 film with Sylvester Stallone and Madeline Jesus. Stowe. Um, and this was Anthony Quinn's last film, and he must be gutted in heaven with that, because I... This is a film that I saw a lot as I was uh, growing up and thought, no, I've never seen that. And on the cover, it's um, Sylvester Stallone and he's holding a gun wearing a suit and Madeline Stowe's like holding his hand behind him. And the so it's called Avenging Angelo. And the tagline is, her life is his job. Um, what this is, is mismarketing because, and I'm not talking about my old math teacher, it's a romantic comedy more like a front and center i put this on not like i don't know why i just thought oh, do you know what i haven't seen that i like so i'm just gonna put it on and it's almost got this soft focus on it it's 2002 and i genuinely thought it was the late 80s early 90s um oh. and it's the, the plot such as it is is that anthony quinn is a, is an old italian crime lord uh, he has got a daughter played by Madeline Stowe, who, uh, because his wife died in childbirth, and he is wanted by so many people, he sort of gave her away in secret to this family and just made sure that the mother and father knew 
you know, n- never told them who he was. And he sort of watched her grow up from afar using Sylvester Stallone as um, his bodyguard, but also to keep tabs on her just to make sure she was okay. Sylvester Stallone's been doing this at Anthony Quinn's uh, request for, you know, 30 years. She's, you know, she's grown up now and he has fallen in love with her. But again, from afar, Anthony Quinn dies, he gets assassinated and he has to sort of step into her life and she doesn't believe anything. And she, you know, she just thinks she's just this middle American woman who's got this normal family and she doesn't believe all this sort of mob connection. It's awful. It's easily genuinely one of the worst films I've ever seen because they've got no chemistry. The whole film is Madeline Stowe just disbelieving everything and shrieking and Sylvester Stallone basically just rubbing his temples and, and like wanting to tell it to shut up, but being too meek to do so. Um, it doesn't sound that, like a very Madeline Stowe-like part, I've got to say. Well, honestly, she doesn't stop. And wow. it's it's awful and it's, and it's not funny and it's irritating more than anything for a good hour of the runtime. And then it comes up with this twist. And this is all I really want to say about it, because it's just a boring, boring film. It comes up with this twist uh, where, of course, I was sort of dawned on me halfway through. I thought, oh, yeah, Anthony Quinn was actually assassinated. I forgot. This is such a boring, like, weak romantic comedy that I forgot that there was supposed to be something involved behind it. And she, at the start of the film, was a member of this book club and someone who has recently released a, a kind of an erotic novel is this uh it, this, this this italian hunk mm. and halfway through the film just when she's starting to think oh actually i do fancy sylvester stallone uh they they out from meal and she bumps into this guy from a book club this author and she just starts falling in love with him and it turns out that he is the person who ordered the hit on her father and then it turns mm-hmm. into a gun, gunfight at the end and i thought so y- your plan was to write a successful book and then join her book club and befriend her and be really platonic for whatever, however long the time it was and then take her out a series of dates alone and then at, and then randomly at some point months down the line reveal that you had a father killed you're part of the mob and just try to like really clumsy kill her in the middle of the street and Sylvester Stallone steps in and kicks off the last sort of act it's pathetic wow. It's clearly just tacked on to try and make something happen in this awful romantic comedy. Like I said, it's got eye-rolling humour and the music is just this awful saxophone and it looks like it was made 10, 15, possibly 20 years earlier. It is dreadful. So don't watch it. God, that sounds amazing. Lee bad. Um, <laughs> straight to video, I believe. I, I don't Which know. Which I... back then. <laughs> straight to a video recorder <laughs> and be like, seen not by into a video not into a video recorder because no one would rent it <laughs> so yeah that was uh, that was Avenged Angelus bloody dreadful really bad <laughs> dismal stuff what is that on if anyone were inclined to subject if, themselves if you were to guess between Disney Plus, Netflix, and Amazon Prime, which that film was on, which is one of the worst films I've ever seen. Which one would you I, go for? Which... I would venture Prime, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Disney Plus is giving 
giving the others a run for their money in terms of like shoddy 90s early 2000s stuff so uh, well, um, don't worry i'm gonna talk about the siege don't worry don't jump ahead too far <laughs> um well i'll um run through uh another prime candidate um because his name was a prime um oh, called man. dreamscape which is a film <laughs> that was made in the 1980s and it becomes pretty quickly apparent that that is the decade in which it is made um, for various reasons. So the president of the United States is having nightmares of nuclear war. Um, Dennis Quaid is a telekinetic. Uh, Dennis Quaid is not the president of the United States, but he is a telekinetic. Um, now, obviously, Dennis Quaid, he's a roguish charmer who uh, he's hus he's hustling money at um, the racetrack using psychic powers somehow. I'm not really sure how that would help. But anyway, um, maybe reading the minds of horses. Um, anyway, so he goes home after his various female conquests um, and plays saxophone on his own. Good. Uh Anyway, so he's brought into this experimental research project um, by Max von Sydow. Um, it involves dreams. Um, oh, and Cape Capsule works there as well. Um, so basically, the idea is that he'll be psychically projected into um, someone else's dream and play an active part in it. Um, David Patrick Kelly is a rival psychic who's just needlessly antagonistic towards him. Um, he wears a sky blue turtleneck under a silk flowery shirt at one point. So that was excellent. Great. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, Christopher Plummer is the sinister boss of the company. Kate Capture, as I said, she's this kind hearted, flamboyantly permed research assistant lady. Um, and George Went of Cheers and House fame. Uh, plays this author trying to uncover a conspiracy relating to this dream facility. So there's a lot going on. There's a lot of characters going on. And there's even a subplot involving Dennis Quaid befriending this kid who is being terrorised by a monster in his dreams. So there's a lot going on here. And it, and there's a reason I've, I've gone through all that before returning to the president plot, because it takes so long for the, for the president of the United States, the POTUS plot, to become the focus of Dennis Quaid's kind of introduction to this program about 40 minutes in before it's it you know what's going to happen you know that Dennis Quaid's going to end up going into the president's mind in order to stave off nuclear war um so yeah it takes a long time to settle on anything and um I mean that whole nuclear war context it was obviously pretty common in like, young adult thrillers in the 1980s um, see also war games, but it's pretty meaningless to kids now. Um, the dream sequences do at least have some attempt at dreamlike qualities uh, in terms of like chaotic logic and architecture and lighting and stuff. So it's a uh, it's a lot more breezy and fun than something like Inception, and it doesn't it doesn't tie itself in knots trying to explain all the different levels of consciousness and stuff. It's more focused on focusing on the storytelling and character building without getting bogged down in the tech. Uh, so it's it's quite an unusual mix of sci-fi, conspiracy thriller, horror and action, which shouldn't really work, but it does give the film this 
quite appealing unpredictability because you don't really know what the next scene is going to bring. Is it going to be like a weird, like creature feature type monster chase scene, or is it going to be a a, a slightly goofy farcical action scene, or, or you know, what's it going to be? Uh, it's got this synth orchestral score by Morris Jar, which is amazing, and it's, it ends up sounding like a Mega Drive game. Um, Good. So, yeah, overall, it's it's very silly, but quite enjoyable. And obviously, Dennis Quaid gives it everything. It is worth a watch, um, really mostly for the cast, thinking about it. After all the people I've mentioned, it is, it's a lot of actors who are probably better than the material, but they do elevate it. Um, it's more of an, it's like an action horror comedy, really, rather than any kind of a deep interrogation of the meaning of dreams. But that's fine. Yeah, I, I quite see, enjoyed it. I can see that Chris Mulkey is in it, so that makes me happy. Okay, not Russell Mulkey. Um, uh, the the cover of this film, it's, it's not dissimilar to Indiana Jones, is it? In some respects. <laughs> Yeah, I would imagine this must have been a very difficult one to market in the first place, actually. And I suspect they probably just settled on a generic uh, Indiana Jones type thing because it's got mm. mass appeal, I suppose, rather than, you know, targeting it as a pure horror or a pure comedy or action film or whatever. So I still don't think it did particularly well. I can see it's written by Chuck Russell as well, who's got some serious bangers under his belt. Yeah. Which is good to write- know. Didn't he do Night of the Creeps, or I just imagined that? I don't know. I know he did like the mask, and he did some absolute keepers in the nineties and two thousands. But uh, yeah, I've never even heard of Dreamscape, to be honest. And this would be a film that would draw me to it because of Dennis Quaid. Does he sit behind the fridge giggling at any point in this? Or no, that doesn't. No, that doesn't uh, occur here. He just squat on top of a free, uh, like a. A flat freezer but other than that no um <laughs> he's, he's always got to be sitting on sort of top of some sort of appliance no chuck russell didn't do uh night of the creeps uh he be he did nightmare on elm street three the good one um the dream warriors he did quite yeah so he did the blob he did the mask um things slipped away a little bit weren't like after that no hang on Oh, I've closed it now, but yeah, I'm sure he's done some absolute keepers in the 2000s. No, I haven't closed it. There he is. Chuck Russell, come on. When do you think it started slipping? I bet he's still cranking out the gold. <laughs> there we go. Look, Eraser. Perfect. Okay, yeah, it did. <laughs> <laughs> is Eraser the one? Is that the one with um, James Caan? Uh, uh, yeah, with Arnie. You've just been erased. Yeah, that's... Uh, that was a silly film, wasn't it? It was silly. It covered uh, that. I it was think quite that, enjoyable, to be fair. I think that Arnie was miscast in that movie, but he's been miscast in a lot of his films. He has, he has, and somehow he's got away with it. Night of the Creeps was directed by Fred Decker, sorry, who of course went on to do the latest Predator movie badly. Whoops. Moneyball is the next film for me, and uh, it's uh, just another two minutes here because I really, really like this film, and it was on par for my film of the film of the week and also it spiraled on to to the next few films i'm going to talk about because it put me in a certain frame of mind like a a legal money-driven uh sportsy sort of frame of mind and 
I, I, I don't often watch sports films, and I know this was quite lauded, but because of its subject matter of baseball and effectively the behind-the-scenes um, money business of baseball, I thought, I'm not going to enjoy that. But I actually really, really liked it. Um, mm. And the, the film is just about... Uh, Brad Pitt plays a, a, a real guy, based on a real guy called Billy Bean, who is trying to... is Sorry, I hear my mouth then. Is trying to assemble a decent team. I think he's for like the Oaklands. It works for, I don't, I've forgotten the name of the team he's the manager for. Oakland Athletics. Yeah, he is trying to, he's got the lowest amount of money. I think he mentions like 30 million or something. He's got to put this like world um, league winning team together with 30 million when the other teams are hanging around with like hundreds of millions and just getting the mm. best players and getting them from the other teams. Um, and I think I, we chatted briefly about this offline and you said that you never really fully understood the statistics and what they were going for. And I'm completely with you on that. But I think it speaks to the film's strength that I was still completely invested in the characters mm. and what was happening. And I just found it really like almost um, relaxing in a way because it's, of course, there's not much action in it. It's a lot of talking, a lot of like really saucy dialogue and some really dryly funny scenes. Um, like there's a scene where... Um, Brad Pitt says to Jonah Hill, who's sort of his apprentice, oh, by the way, you're going to have to like let one of the team go. you just got to go in there. Oh, the cinematography is by Wally Pfister, which is why it's such a tasty-looking film. Um, you've got to go in there and just just tell him that he's been dropped and, you know, he's just been shipped off somewhere else. And Jonah Hill's like, oh, that's, that's they're going to be crushing. I, I, I have no idea how to do that. I mean, I'm just here as like a number cruncher. And Brad Pitt says, look, go in there, be straight, tell him straight. And, uh, you know, they're, they're men. They're, this is their job. They'll, they'll be fine with it. And you think, this isn't going to go well. And uh, it, it just does. Like, he goes in and just explains. And the guy says, oh, fair enough. Totally understandable. And just walks out. And Johnny Hill, like, slaps his thighs. Like, oh, that was easy. And I was waiting for the guy to come in and punch him or something. But he didn't. And uh, <laughs> it's that kind of really quiet humor that runs through the film. And, uh, and of course, you've got um, Philip Seymour Hoffman in this as well. It's just... Um, always memorable even though he's in this film for about 30 seconds in total it's such a bizarre casting because it's just it's such a low-key part in 2011 when mm. he was like pretty big news but um yeah just a really good film to check on and and sort of drink in and enjoy because it just feels of quality um people who yeah. have more of a sports background will probably understand the um nuts and bolts of it more than i will but i, I still happily sat through it and thought i'm enjoying this I think it's written by Aaron Sorkin, which probably explains it, why it's it feels so good to just watch it and like like let it sink wash in. Wash over you. Yeah, wash it. Yeah, exactly. Because this, I mean, Aaron Sorkin's such a good writer, and I, I think if you if you enjoy the kind of dialogue you get in something like this, and it's worth watching Steve Jobs as well, because that that was also written by him, and it that is literally just people talking to each other in rooms and corridors and uh, occasionally outside and in auditoriums and stuff. And it's just talking and just really lengthy dialogue scenes. But there's, there's something about the language that Aaron Sorkin uses, which is so precise. Uh, and I think I've read somewhere that it's, it's it truly is precise as well. Like it, they, there's no, there's no improvisation sort of thing uh people you know it's like stick to the script sort of thing because it's so it, it's so carefully crafted and yeah and it shows on the screen so yeah definitely enjoyed that 
didn't understand all of it. But then that's okay, you know. It's like we talked about like Wall Street before. I, I love these films where it feels like I'm out of my depth, but I'm still carried along with the story. Now that you've now that you've mentioned Wall Street, can I quickly tie those two films together, really super quickly? Yes. Uh, I, following on from this, I watched um, the film, which you've already covered previously, and I enjoyed that because Tom Cruise. So you imagine the problem I've got, right? I've watched nice. Moneyball. I've watched Moneyball, and then I watched Tom Cruise in the film, and then I put on Wall Street, which is a film I've never seen before. And I just spent the entire film wishing that Charlie Sheen wasn't in it because my whole my whole me- like uh, sort of my personal relationship with Charlie Sheen is that it's two and a half men effectively and like Hot Shots part do so two and a half men which is a, f- a show that I kind of remember being on all the time at a certain point in my twenties and being like mildly amusing. I'm watching him in this and I was just thinking I-, I don't think I've seen you in anything apart from a horror film from late nineties called Postmortem where he was credited as Charles Sheen that was really forgettable. But oh. I'm, w- I'm watching you in this and it's you're just not. You're not an interesting screen presence to, to me, anyway. No. And um, not convincing. Not a particularly good actor. I think that's what it comes down to. He doesn't seem to embody roles. And I, like, I suppose something like Platoon will probably be one of his highest profile, most lauded performances. But then I just thought watching that, you're like, you know, Martin Sheen, your dad, completely, you know, he completely dominated Apocalypse Now a few years earlier. Now watching you and i'm not convinced i don't think you're really there there are scenes in this in in money in wall street where he is talking to charlie um to his father martin sheen who plays his father in it yeah. and even that's not convincing like the, the kind of it's just the way it's like there's no it's weird mm. it's like he just sucks the chemistry out of the screen um there's a lot of old tech in it but i just okay daryl hannah turns up in wall street her hair i don't know what's <laughs> going on with it it's like they just threw a load of candy floss at her and said, action. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I didn't, I wasn't swept away by it. It wasn't even like um, mm. The Wolf of Wall Street where I was supposed to be seduced by it. I just thought it's just an irritating man. And, uh, and you know, Michael Douglas, it was fine. I just didn't find it as impactful as I thought. I actually preferred the sequel, Money Never Sleeps, because cause Shia LaBeouf is just a stronger screen presence. And Yes, that is and, true. And 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 I I like the whole is is he or isn't he rehabilitated? And yes, that it, it does get a bit stretched. But there's especially but when there's a point where Michael Douglas says to Shia LaBeouf after he's come out of prison for fraud, I have got an offshore bank account with a hundred million dollars in it that I haven't got access to, but you have. If you give it to me, I'll go away and make sure that like you know you get the money, you're able to access the money. And he says, oh wicked, yeah okay. I'll see you in a bit then. And he just pisses off with the money. And I thought, come on, Shire. Come on now. <laughs> come on. Um, but yeah, it's yeah I, I think, I guess the, the, the point of that whole thing is it's the idea that like Shia LaBeouf is, his character is quite idealistic and naive. Um, like he believes that, you know, you can be good and also work in the city and stuff. And then this kind of dinosaur from the from the Reagan era comes out of hiding and suddenly it's like, oh, no, the old the old economics are back. But but you've got to think that is hopelessly naive on his part. I mean, it's like, really, you're just going to hand out this person who's just been released from prison. You're going to hand over the keys to this treasure chest. Are you OK? Brilliant. Yeah. But I did prefer it to the original. 
Yes. Well, the original is, is so dated on so many levels. And yeah, I, I didn't, cannot get past Charlie Sheen. Yeah, he really does affect it. Um, I don't know what it was received critically at the time, but I know it's seen as a, you know, or rather, maybe it's just I'm mistaking it. And it's the, it's the Gordon Gecko character that's seen as a sort of seminal figure in that industry, as opposed to the film itself. It's just he stole it. But I just yeah, found I, well, that I they, think they, he's bigger than the movie, I'd say the Gordon Gecko thing. Like the greed is good line was in a similar way to like how Wolf of Wall Street seems to be quite uh, attractive to exactly the kind of people it's satirizing. It's like uh, the whole greed is good thing. I mean, this is written by Oliver Stone, who's, you know, hardly notable for his Reaganomics. So um, it was clearly not intended to be taken literally. But yeah, greed is good. That became the mantra on Wall Street. Anyway, so Whose go is it now? Where where are we? Whose go is it? Oh, pass me the controller, Dad. Um, well, it's you because I just managed to squeeze in th- uh, four in one, so it's definitely you. Right. Okay. Well, let's um, talk about Edge of the Axe. This is one of the ones I watched on Arrow while I had a seven-day trial <laughs> Prime. Um, Edge of the Axe. This is a Spanish U- Spanish slash US slasher released in 1989, so long after the heyday of the slasher. But it is unusually well made and well acted, um, despite its many cliches. So basically, there's this axe murderer on the loose in a rural community. It's the kind of community that looks a bit like Twin Peaks. Um, and it's, like, it's got some interesting characters in it, um, some slightly implausible characters. Like the the main police chief is, seems distinctly uninterested in the fact that there's this killer going around there's one bit where the killer beheads a pig and puts it in someone's bed and the police chief literally says to the victim oh tell someone who gives a shit um so probably should do a bit more than that at least send a maybe send a sergeant round about i'm not sure um, <laughs> so the main guys in this are f- these friends called gerald and richard um Gerald is banging to computers, right? And his new Icarus computer is top of the line. And it is green screen as well. Um, 20 mega hard drive, was it? Or? This is 1989, so it really shouldn't have been green screen. Anyway, Richard, the other one, is married to this old lady and they seem to have an open relationship. Um, so going back to Gerald with his computer, right? Because he meets this girl and they communicate via... A uh, kind of basic version of email and every time they write a message to each other right it's like instant messaging uh, every time they type something a booming voice comes out of the computer like an echoing booming voice comes out to read their text out in a like it's really flat emotionless voice it's like that's a function you turn off really isn't it anyway it is yeah but this subplot is it, it's it's quite oddly prescient i found because a couple end up they're communicating through like these instant messages and they they end up like agonizing over like whether the other person will reply so it's sort of like replying to text basically and and then they end up like wondering whether their relationship is too dependent on communicating through machines and stuff which i thought was quite interesting um but really the characterization isn't particularly deep um but it is quite engagingly idiosyncratic um uh, you've got this music which is a combination of dodgy country inflected instrumental rock and sort of bubbling synth 
standard for the time. Um, I like how local politics plays into that investigation into the killer. Like, um, for example, when a body is found, like um, the police chief, he he's putting pressure on the um, the local doctor to claim it as suicide because he doesn't want the the image the image of safety of the town to be tarnished. So that gives it a little bit more depth. And I also like how it's spaced within this established community. So it's not outsiders coming in and causing a stir. It's, it's quite a lived-in atmosphere. Um, there is a mystery element to, as to the identity of the killer. Um, so you, you're kind of left guessing until the end. There's lots of amusing red herrings along the way. Like to, in the second half of the film, there's literally a new red herring every scene. So you're constantly convinced that the killer is a different person. Um, the killings themselves are pretty brutal, actually, um, and they're often like in frame. So, you know, like normally you'll get like you see the axe come down and then you'll cut to sort of like maybe the the wound or some blood splattering on the wall. In this, yeah. you, you just kind of see the strokes of the axe actually hit the people and like plunge into them and stuff. It's quite it's quite unusually brutal and quite well done. Um and there's some cool makeup effects, so that's always good. Um, so other than that, the kind of setting and the mystery element, it never really transcends the slasher roots, but it does have quite a manic twist at the end, which makes for a pretty exciting finale. So I think overall it's an above average slasher, really. Um, came late in the day, 1989. So uh, possibly why it's not particularly well known. Um, oh, but, what's this yeah, called? The sh- swing of the axe, do you say? It was edge called? of the axe. I bet it's got a different title in other regions, but edge of the axe is what it's known as here. Um, oh yeah, it's got yeah. it's got a fr- Frenchman's farmy type scuzzy cover to it as well. Yeah, it's nice. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll... I quite enjoyed this. I think I quite enjoyed this. I think I think because it's like it's not quite. Like as we'll come to, it's not quite like uh, uh, an undiscovered gem, but it's like for someone if you're after a, like a half decent slasher because let's face it, the few and far between, then you do a lot worse. Please tell me you've got an undiscovered gem in your arsenal. I have an uh, absolutely we... gleaming gem. I watched Aftermath from 2021, starring Sean Ashmore, who is a man. That a lot of people look over, but I really, I don't know why, I find him, I just like looking at him. He's 41 and looks 20. And I think you need to say Aftermath, not that one in this case, don't you? Uh, because when you said Aftermath, I thought you meant the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie about that bloody plane crash. No, actually, it said Aftermath, not that one, not that one, because there's also a 1994 really horrendous graphic. I think it might even be banned like a necrophiliac horror that I watched yeah. when I was a, when I was a teenager that really had me sort of um, wiggling my glasses on my nose. I haven't seen it since. Um, I was just sat inside a mortuary, uh, and that was full on. This is the ideal location, really, for <laughs> for necrophiliac for, that's, yeah. for that sort of horseplay. Yeah. Well, they say, "Oh, we just uh, called you back, Mister Jones. We think you're perfect for the job as a mortician." And you say, "Did you did you read my CV fully? Because I'm assuming you haven't got to hobbies and interests yet." <laughs> <laughs> yes, you like playing Spanish guitar? Is that you, the one? No. 
<laughs> the next page. Um, so this is, uh, yeah, and also Sean Ashmore just looks like Neil Patrick Harris, but a better version. He, this is a film where it's not very good. I'm just going to say it. And uh, he uh, is trying to get over the, the the suicide of his brother from a few years ago, and his relationship with his his, his uh, fiance or sorry his girlfriend is is struggling. And so he works as a crime scene cleaner. And at the start of the film, we see that someone has killed their wife and blown their brains out uh, through quite a like buzzing, lingering shot on this toothy corpse. Uh, they he goes there with his crew to clean it up and makes an offer on the house and buys it and then moves in with his girlfriend. There is a scene at the start of this film that tricked me into thinking, hang on, this this could this could be there could be something here because he goes to this place and he's a crime scene cleaner, right? So he cleans all the blood up and stuff. The girls the 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 victim's sister just wants to sell it, just wants to get rid of it. So he makes a stupidly low offer and she takes it. And when he goes back, he says, oh, I've got an idea for like a fresh start to his, his artist or his, his, I think she's a, a seamstress wife, a girlfriend. Let's move into this house. And she says to him, hang on, you've like you're thinking of putting an offer in it and viewing a house. And we've had no discussions about it. And I thought, you go, girl, you go places that <laughs> that <laughs> film with Dennis Quaid didn't. You put your foot down. <laughs> and he sort of plays the Yeah, my brother did blow his brains out. So, you know, I just want to I just want to move and like have a new start. And she says, fair enough. So they go in this house. And as they buy it, it, they're told, oh, by the way, um, I think that the previous owner was having an affair and we don't know what happened to the man that she was having an affair with. And I thought, hang on now. So you've got this house, which was designed by an architect, which is like really specifically designed and has all of these weird walls and cavities and stuff. And you've got a murder where the head was totally removed from the you know the, the one of the victims in a murder suicide i'm gonna just go out on a limb and say that bloke is still living in the walls of the house uh, and underneath in the basement and you're not going to believe this rupert that is exactly what happens that is exactly wow. what happens well i don't give a shit about spoiling this film the chemistry between them is just non-existent they, they go to marriage counseling but they just don't they just don't get on they have no right. like shared interests. They're constantly bickering and at each other's throats. And then they'll have sex and think, oh, that's assorted then. And then it, it, literally by the time he's popped his toast in the morning, they're at each other's throats again. They're just like a mismatched couple that shouldn't be just together. Don't like each other. Okay. Yeah, just don't. There's no, nothing there. Um, all the drama that's thrown in, her sister's really irritating. She says, oh, my mother's coming to stay with us. And he's like, oh, I'll be okay. And she says, no, she'll, she'll be a stupid tart. And the mother's just openly hostile. Situations that you just wouldn't have those people mm. there. You just say like, "I don't, just don't come around." We'll argue. I don't want anything to yeah. do with you. But it's forced just a drama, forced yeah. drama, and and it gets to a point where we see a chase sequence, which is why I did say that the guy is living there. We see a chase sequence where she has been actively pursued in quite a buzzing scene, where this really tall, skinny bloke gets up from under a bed, and chases around the house. Jeez. He is mo- he is moving furniture, and chasing and knocking things over, smashing lights, and eventually she sort of gets away from him by jumping and falling into the pool, and the police turn up. And then we, we get taken to the police station, and they say, oh, this is the footage we found. Um, You don't see anything. And it's just her running around the house, and I thought, that's just cheating, that is. Because <laughs> like, I, I know, I know that she was being pursued, and this isn't edited footage, this is just you saying, oh, it's just her running around, you think, what? That's not, that's not what I saw. Um, 
uh, so and also, the things that he was this tall guy was doing just don't appear on camera at all yeah and there's and nothing shown nothing that. supernatural yeah we saw we see mm-hmm. we see him like move furniture around we see he'll run into a room that he then blocks by pushing furniture in front of like that mm-hmm. is real that is what happened there's nothing supernatural and when it cuts to the camera we see in the police station that sean asma was watching when he's like doubting his wife's sanity you see her run into the room and then it just cuts to something else and i thought we'll just watch that camera for five seconds longer guys um there's there's some slightly buzzing moments it's very bright very tv-ish um there's some Mm. quite creepy moments where he kind of comes out of the darkness that's quite cool but the problem is the film is so long it's two hours long that you're just when these things happen it's just good for like something creepy to happen instead of watching a couple bickering um and at the end, when it you find out, you know, he's actually the, the person who killed the guy and cheated and whatever, or the reveal happens, he is like this gaunt, like has lost the power of speech. His teeth are really yellow. His hair's really long and scraggly, and he's got all these like old TVs he's collected in the basement. Three months has passed. So <laughs> you're like, you're like well, this is that doesn't work he wouldn't he wouldn't live like that he wouldn't have descended to that level of madness and he certainly wouldn't be that like level of like frail physicality if three months had passed it's ridiculous it's like he's been there for decades <laughs> and the whole thing is silly and uh yeah don't watch it that's aftermath with sean ashmore who but then sean ashmore was in that other film i watched a few months ago if you remember where he gets in the mind of a serial killer mm. by just thinking like them sitting in a room and thinking like them and then he finds out where like this victim's being held and you're like what you've just drawn on a whiteboard and sat in a room like laughing for a week how would you know anything it doesn't make you psychic (laughs) wow okay um that's a netflix isn't it so okay i'm not gonna watch that that sounds trashy in a not a good way yeah um should i talk about a really rubbish 1989 horror film Oh, finally. <laughs> yeah, so this is called Hellgate. Um, is this one with Stephen uh, Dorff? No, that's The Gate, isn't it? Yeah, unfortunately it's not The Gate, no. Uh, Hellgate, this is this was on Arrow via Prime as well. And, yeah, 1989, it got brutal reviews at the time, and deservedly so. So there's this legend of the Hellgate hitchhiker, and it originates from the 1950s. This young woman was kidnapped and taken to town. <laughs> I've covered this. This is one I talked about a few months ago. Oh, really? Yeah, it's with this... a guy who's got like a load of iron patchwork on his face, and they keep going back to the diner, and it's really unclear which time period it is. Yes. 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 Well, we're we're covering it again. Here we go. Good. Hold tight. <laughs> Jeez. Did you enjoy it as much as me? Um, it was. I found it just like really like lazily balmy just the whole yeah. thing was just odd and yeah it's i wouldn't so say i enjoyed weird. it but it felt like a curio um so anyway so this young woman kidnapped taking this town of hellgate she's attacked and apparently killed the girl's father becomes an embittered madman who hates all strangers um an old guy finds a crystal in a cave by the town which has the power to bring the dead back to life so of course the girl's father brings his daughter back to life so she um, and they kind of have this arrangement where she can entice them into the town so with her pure 80s sexiness, uh, and then they're killed. Um, so the temptress herself is a very 80s-looking model with fake boobs and crimped hair. Um, now, the rules of this crystal 
uh, woefully unexplained. It, it brings <laughs> things back to life. But when you first see it, they, you first see things coming back to life. They're presented as exploding after a short period, but then this whole rule is just forgotten about. I don't, I don't know yeah. why. Um, and later on, there's one zombie that can just vanish into thin air at will. Where did that come from? The main guy is played... He's a teenager, apparently. Played he by is in his late 40s. <laughs> that he, he is. He was. I checked. Actually, he's genuinely 39 in this film, and he could be older. It's preposterous. I think they're trying to cover it up, um, his age, because he, he's literally wearing mascara in this film. He drives women crazy somehow, despite being a rather nerdy, weedy man with unmanageable hair. Um, <laughs> and someone who's lying about their age. Um, and... This guy, and he's not even like he's charming or anything. He shows his willingness to cheat on his girlfriend twice within the first half an hour, which renders him a complete asshole for whom we have little sympathy. He's completely charmless. In the end, his girlfriend finds him in bed with this naked succubus. Um, but she still wants him back, of course. Yeah, um, yeah I remember this. Yeah. Um, the motivation for this guy, Matt, and his friends going back into the house where this machete-wielding owner attempted to kill him with a magic crystal is pretty flimsy at best. Why not call the police after this happened? Who knows? Perhaps because it's, it tries to get away with it by being uh, a comedy, allegedly. It's got really crass, smutty humour in it. Um, yeah. Like uh, like when Matt goes, he goes down on his girlfriend and her eyes cross. It's like, oh, God like all this stilted dialogue, really terrible performances. It's one of those teen horrors where the screenwriter couldn't write convincing dialogue. So the teens are just really sarcastic with each other and it doesn't look like they've ever met each other before either. Um, as a horror, it is not scary or atmospheric and the attempts at any like surreal imagery just look really cheap and shoddy. Like if you remember that this is whole sequence at the end with this zany circus performance, Yes. And it just looks really lifeless and embarrassing. And it's a terrible film. It's called Hellgate. I remember wondering, because it's, it's a ghost town, but yeah. at, at the start, I couldn't work out if it was, because of how cheap the sets were, yeah. if it was if it was like a ghost town as in like an actual circus ghost town that like you pay to yeah. go into, or if it's an actual American ghost town. If you know oh, what it's I mean. not clear. None it was so clear. badly explained, yeah. And they keep going about the diner. And I remember thinking, is this before the events of the film or after? Like, mm. because it's so badly edited and put together. Yeah, look, so I, I kind of would, if you're a fan of like genuine, like bad trash horror cinema, I'd recommend it because mm. you, you sit there thinking, what? What? Yeah. Is it like, genuinely one of those movies? But so, what? Why is that happening? What? Yeah. Why are we here? And now? Not, Who's that person? Not in a kind of admiring way of like, it's not like you're admiring the sheer creativity and like imagination. You're thinking, who agreed that that was a good idea to put that scene there? It's one of those, like, it's more like you're watching a ghast. So, yeah. It's, pr it's pronounced ghost. You're watching a ghost. <laughs> Um, I, I'm going to do another two minute day. I watch Running with the Devil, which is a 2019 crime thriller starring Nicolas Cage and Lawrence Fishburne. Laura, this is this film has its merits. It, it, Nicolas Cage is a meth uh, a cook who has been tasked by his 
off-screen boss to find out uh, there's a point in the in the um, in in the travel of the drug they make where where it comes from, I guess, like down in Mexico up to a certain part of Canada or whatever, where mm. something something's going wrong and someone is someone is cutting the drug or taking it because when it turns up this destination it's not pure anymore and stuff is missing so it's quite a cool premise where nicholas cage is just he seems to be just a pretty you know he just like is a chef like an actual chef in a restaurant on and on the side he's this drug stuff but he's actually quite capable so he just he's got this like testing kit for heroin and it's clear when it's pure and if it changes if it's discolored at all when he tests the heroin at the different stages in this journey that's when they know it's been tampered with and they know the the person that's tampered if you know what i mean because mm-hmm. it passes through so many hands so it starts off with uh clifton collins jr making it in the middle of like some jungle somewhere and then they they walk it up to up to the uh, mexican border uh, and then and then it gets passed on to a lot of people throughout america and and it makes its way right up to canada uh and lawrence fishman is a part of that chain and we spend a lot of the story with him and he's just he's basically someone who is we know he is the person that is cutting it and he's cutting it with something he says at some point he's like oh, I'm, I'm just when he's found out they say what are you cutting it with and he says oh, oh just a bit of this and a bit of that and it's just two really buzzing chemicals i remember thinking bloody hell i wouldn't want that like in my house under the sink to unblock my drains let alone like up my ass and in my <laughs> veins and um and yeah so that that's quite sort of funny into play and his um uh, one of his Adam Goldberg, who is Eddie, the ha- flatmate in Friends, uh, plays one of Lawrence Fishman's acquaintances. Um, the setup is cool, and I will say that like Nicholas Cage and Lawrence Fishman are invested, especially Lawrence Fishman. He has a lot of fun with this. This one scene where he's just completely naked, which is totally fine. Um, and uh, and there were some really good moments in it, but the, but the, I realised that what the problem was was the film was so sort of scattershot in its approach that I wasn't. It felt like it, the way it ended, I felt like it was trying to sort of make a point, and right. I thought I'm attacking this from a total like um, fun B movie aspect, and you're trying to make this sort of salient point, and it's not landing. It, it it's right. it's it doesn't it the film isn't presented that way, so it's it's good fun. Um, and there are some like nice lines of dialogue and some nice set pieces in there, and both actors are invested, but it, it doesn't stand up enough to be like a sort of solid recommendation. It's sort of like mid- middling tier stuff. Also, if I were to say to you, who would you think would be cast as a really high-ranking uh, Canadian government official that is at the head of this operation, this shadowy mastermind in the background with all this gravitas? Who would you think it would be? Which actor comes to mind when I when I say those things? A Canadian actor with gravitas. Well, no, it, no, he he is plays. Doesn't have to be a Canadian actor, but he's he's a high up ranking official in the Canadian government. I, my throw, mind jumped to David Cronenberg. To be honest, did it did it jump to Barry Pepper? <laughs> no, he did not. Oh, right. Barry Pepper. He's, he's, this, it, it wouldn't be a, our podcast without a sprinkling of pepper, would it? <laughs> sprinkling of pepper. That is the title sorted. Um, <laughs> Matthew Modine, by the way, is turning into David Cronenberg. Yeah, I can imagine that. It's, it's that kind of broad chin combined with a very th- slender neck. A swept back of hair so yeah, that was uh, running, running with the devil that is on i believe it's on amazon prime and it, it's 
it's good up to a point. It's good if you like those actors, which I do. I like Lawrence Fishburne. I really like Nicolas Cage. So it is. It's a good watch, but it's it's a forgettably good watch. Right. It's called Running. I can't even remember what they're talking. Running in the. In, in, running in tennis shoes. What's it called? R- running in Nike Air shoes. <laughs> running in high tech silver shadows. Running with the wow. devil. Okay. Um. Let me very quickly cover The Exterminator, also Arrow via Prime. Uh, this is an unpleasant film. It was made in 1980 by one James Glickenhouse, who's more of a producer. He produced Maniac Cop, but he did make a 1988 cop thriller with Peter Weller and Sam Elliott in it called Shakedown, which I haven't seen. I'm hoping you have, but I want to see it. Um, no, no, I'm, I'm up for watching yeah. it. Yeah. Um so yes, so Steve uh, James is in this film I can see. Yes, he is. Good. Uh, well, yes. Uh it doesn't get to do that much. Um so anyway, so it's basically a couple of best friends return from Vietnam. Uh one of them gets in a fight and uh, is crippled by thugs. His friend, played by Robert Ginty, uh who's more James Spader than Robert Zdar, shall we say, um, becomes a vigilante and he indeed becomes the exterminator. And his motivation is basically cleaning up uh, New York streets and releasing people from the fear of the mob. And this was obviously made in, in the 80s. This was made prior to Rudy Giuliani's crackdown on organized crime. So, so it's it up does... your street then. It's up your street. Yeah. Well, I you'd think so because it does capture Nightmare New York, that whole vibe, quite well. I'd say like Times Square is just utterly seedy, neon dive, and anywhere outside of Times Square just looks like looks like bombed out Dresden. It's disgusting, literally just like collapsed buildings and stuff. It's so bad. Anyway, so um, it's pretty silly. I mean, like it's it's a vigilante slash revenge thriller there's some pretty sadistic ideas they're not that graphic but they're pretty grim there's like a meat grinder death um there's a young woman who's tortured with a hot poker covered in boiling vaseline um someone's burned alive but it's also quite badly made and unconvincing because for example like the scene where someone's lowered into a meat grinder they could literally just put their feet on the edge and just move themselves out of the way, but they just decide to descend helplessly into the blades for some reason. So yeah, anyway, this is basically a, a schlocky exploitation version of Taxi Driver, really, even down to the main guy like befriending a young prostitute. But Robert Ginty is no dinero. Um, there's a few cool stunts, I would say, but otherwise the action's pretty ordinary. It's a film which is caught between like the conspiracy thriller impulses of 70s and the 80s action excesses and it doesn't really feel satisfying on either front and it's too badly made to be a kind of guilty pleasure so not recommended the exterminator what about the sequel exterminator 2 are you going to watch that or i'm not sure i can stomach it to be honest i'm sure they've upped the ante John they, Turturro, is it just the it? one sequel or just the one um mario van peebles and john Turturro are in it so oh, yeah okay um yeah i might skip that one yeah so that's the exterminator okay um 
I'll talk about briefly then another two minutes uh, about the game from 1997, which I think is secretly one of my favorite films because so good. Yeah, I know. I didn't realize it was kind of looked as a bit of a middling thing in, in um, David Finch's mm. career. This is a film that I, I, I watched a lot as a, as a kid because it came out in 97. I would have been about 14 or 15 and I watched it a lot. I remember watching it and at the time, you know, being a being a teenager watching it and breaking apart where it falls down in logic so the plot is that uh, Sh- uh sean penn is michael douglas's brother and they they come from a very wealthy family background uh dave uh his their father committed suicide at age 40 by the way the father is played by the person that does the voice of mario uh, oh really charles yeah. martinet yeah charles martinet, wow. yeah, martinez uh, so, yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, he really does look like Michael Douglas as well. I actually thought it was Bill Pullman at one point. Um, I and, know what you mean. Yeah. Uh, broad of mouth. And, yeah, so uh, Michael Douglas, is his 40th birthday. It's the age that his father was when he killed himself. He's got a failed marriage behind him with a daughter, and he lives in this palatial house with a, uh, with, with, a, with a maid, and he basically just works, 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 and just sits by himself watching news TV in the evenings. And he uh, gets given a gift to a company called CRS, Consumer Recreational Services, by Sean Penn, his younger brother, with the name Conrad, which is what I wanted to name my son, but it was vetoed out. And <laughs> even as a middle name, hashtag just saying. And uh, Michael Douglas gets embroiled in this uh in a titular game where it's are they trying to are they are they after his money is this real is it is it false what is going on and that is the kind of fun of the film well i say that the fun of the film when i was a teenager and in my early 20s what because i've seen this i've probably seen this about 30 or 40 times was yeah. just just tr- breaking apart where we you know the, the sort of logic of the film and where it would would fall down over the last 10 years though when i watch it i realize i approach it as a, almost an asmr experience because this Michael Douglas has got this this beautiful voice, and it's it doesn't and he, he's there's a lot of dialogue, a lot of this beautiful noirish dialogue between him and Deborah Cara Unger, who's got a really uh, husky voice. So mm. the the and the sound design is quite echoey and soft. So yeah. even when they're doing things like running down running down a running down an alleyway or climbing up a lift shaft, there's this kind of dusty. Rela- relaxing sound to all the sound effects. Mm. It's almost almost like an ASMR effect, um, and the cinematography is so beautifully noirish, so so sort of swathed in darkness, and yeah, and, and that mysterious. kind of golden brown that David Fincher yeah. does so well. Yeah. Uh, it just it just it feels it feels like a hug. The film is so, and I'm so familiar with it now that I can just yes. sit there and just like let it let it wash over me. And I was I, watching this. Oh, on, yeah. Uh, well, I was just going to mention you talk about that kind of like very unique mood that it evokes. And I think a big part of that is the music. I think it's Howard Shaw. Um, and it's such a strange score because there's scenes in there where it's like a kind of there'll be kind of an action scene, um, which where you'd normally have quite kind of like raucous orchestral music kind of uh, to complement the action um to complement the kind of beats of the action and yet howard shaw's score is, is quite often it's it's really soft it's really odd it's almost at odds with what's being shown on screen but it really adds to that mood it's almost like it's really gentle background ambience rather than being a score which punctuates it's a score that kind of lingers in the background it's it's really strange and yet 
uh, I think, quite a powerful decision to, to do it that way. Yeah, absolutely. And it completely dovetails with, with, with the design of the rest of the film, like from a mm. visual aspect. Um, so, yeah, just, just I, I realised when I was watching it, um, I just thought, God, I really love this film. I, mm-hmm. I really I'm so familiar with it and it's so of, of such a quality and just I feel like it can almost be turned into a relaxation tape. Um, <laughs> so I, I yeah, it's a film that I know I will watch many, many times over the years. And I think it's one of my favorite David Fincher films for that reason. So the game is just really good. And it Hashtag. needs to be said again and again how good it is, because it was a little bit ignored, really, wasn't it? Because it sat between seven, which was obviously massive and i guess fight club would have come after it so which are the more lauded films but the game i think is just as good as either of them i would say in its own way it's a very different kind of finch film because it's nowhere near as dark and menacing really as either of them it's much more positive actually and much more kind of goofy in a way isn't it it is fun. It's got this sort yeah. of like a, yes. this dry, dry sense of humour running through it. And yeah, I, I really like it. Um, what? Where is that being shown? I've got a feeling that was on Disney Plus for some reason. Of course. Okay. Um, Horror Express. This is on Arrow via Prime. Um, this is cool. It's a 1972 horror film set on the Trans-Siberian Express, set in early 20th century, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee star. Um, and it's a spooky little sci-fi shocker, really. Um, and it, it I think it's an interesting transition between horror phases, which I'll talk a little bit about in a bit. But it's got this, first of all, it's got really wonderful production design full of like really oaky browns and rusty metal. And... I mean, I guess trains, trains at night back then would have been pretty dark, but this place is dark. Um, so Christopher Lee is transporting this big crate containing a red-eyed monster, which Christopher Lee claims at one point is part ape, part man fossil. Um, Pardon? Um, it's, it's, yeah, whatever. It, it, we'll get onto the science in a bit. Um so this red-eyed monster, it can make you weak blood, turn your brain into mush and kill you just by looking at you. So, of course, it's unleashed on the train. Turns out that the monster isn't just killing people, it's sucking the thoughts out of its victims' brains. Um, and as it does so, it becomes exponentially more knowledgeable with each victim. So it's like sucking their, literally just their brain power. Um they find this out, by the way, because Christopher Lee just literally guesses that's what's happening. Um, by looking at the state of the victim's brains, uh, he works out that somehow that it's sucking the thoughts out of them. Anyway, so to test this theory of Christopher Lee's, they take a sample of the fluid right from the creature's eye. Right. And when they look at this fluid under a microscope, they can literally see the creature's memories in the droplet. I don't think that's how microscopes work. <laughs> they so they take like the first sample they take is just I think it's of like the its most recent victim sort of thing. So it's so, like, ooh, okay. So it's like a photograph in this droplet under the microscope. Amazing. But then they keep looking and it just gets better and better because they then see like images of like dinosaurs. 
So clearly it's been around for millions of years. Amazing. The monster is a dude in a suit. Good. Good. Kind of shoddy, but menacing enough. He's got, he's, interestingly, he's got like one red eye and a disfigured face. So he does, he genuinely looks like a kind of prehistoric Terminator. I wonder if James Cameron saw this movie. Anyway, so as the creature evolves, the film basically turns into like the thing really where the monster can basically uh, embody a host and they don't know who it is. So it's that kind of idea. So okay. it gets that, that's pretty cool. Unfortunately, we do know who it is. So it's not quite as fun as the thing, but still, it's quite a cool idea and it's a nice little twist. And there's a lot of little subplots as one it is this female spy skulking around sexy female spy there's um an exotic foreign guy who looks like rasputin uh, warning everyone that the devil has been unleashed um and basically each character has a different perspective on the monster and a different motivation for wanting to understand it or destroy it um and it moves into a bit of science versus religion territory which is pretty normal for sci-fi fantasy from the early 20th century period um, you know, like Time Machine, War of the Worlds type stuff. Um, and then towards the end, just as an, an additional twist, Telly Savalas rocks up. He, he literally wakes up um, as the captain of the train and he just he just comes blundering in to like arrest everyone. <laughs> Completely <laughs> unsettled. Brilliant. It's a funny performance because it, it does liven up the film and it leads to a really ridiculous like manic finale. Um and yeah, I think overall, Horror Express, yes, it's an enjoyable horror, horror melodrama. And I think it nicely bridges the gap between sort of the, you know, the creaky classics, basically, that Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, the things that made their name, basically. So it bridges the gap between that brand of horror and the new brand of intense paranoia introduced in the 1970s. And I think in that way, I think it's more significant horror, really, than it's given credit for, because it seems to be a bit forgotten. But I think it's got its place in horror history as a transitional film. So it's, it is recommended Horror Express. I'm going to. Where was this, sorry? It is on Arrow via Prime. Oh, on no, Amazon so via Prime. It would require a seven day free trial or indeed pay for it. <laughs> We now approach my film of the week, uh, which is, I don't know if you've seen this. This is a 2014 film called The Drop, starring Tom Hardy and James Gandolfini and Numa Rapace. I have. I reviewed it for a site I was working on at the time, yes. Yeah. I Um, can't remember that much about it, I won't lie. Yeah, well, the the plot is um, that... Tom Hardy is a guy called Bobby Saganowski who works in a just a bar in Brooklyn and his boss uh, James Gandolfini uh, is a guy called Marvin Stippler and they they sort of work in this bar I think it's it's called Marv's but it, it's it's now run by mobsters and they just sort of work there and uh, one night walking, walking home from working at the bar Tom Hardy hears a dog barking in a bin and it's really battered uh, puppy that uh, Nuri Pacha, whose house it is, just she says, I don't know why that dog is in my bin. Um, he sort of ends up taking care of it and going back to the bar 
uh, and getting approached by the previous owner who clearly used to beat the shit out of it just giving him like really sort of half veiled threats like give my dog back so I can continue to like beat it up and cut it and put cigarettes on it and Tom Harley's really not keen keen on that idea quite frankly um, and it's just it's very much so and it's just all these things go on and then the the, the drop of the title it, it uh, ties into how they're in Brooklyn there are certain drop bars for the people come in who work for the, the mob and they sort of surreptitiously drop off money and it gets picked up at the end of the night and the bar that they work in is is a drop bar and the night through which all of these events sort of take place mainly is a night that they have been highlighted as a, as a drop bar so you've got all this money there and someone's trying to rob it and blah 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 blah. the plot kind of got, went by the way you said a little bit for me because I was really hip steep in the performances Tom Hardy's just got this really he's it's 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 kind of um a very understated performance because he's almost simple-minded like there's magic in the air and he is just working at this bar and he claims you know he just works at the bar doesn't know anything that's going on and and when he goes home we see that he lives in quite a nice house a very old-fashioned house but you can see that his parents have died and he's just sort of inherited it and hasn't done anything with it and you, and that's kind of just shown by a simple camera passing by uh, a, f- a family picture as it settles on him in the scene if you know what I mean and that t- gives us all the information we need about his background his family background so it's not you are not just like battered with information or obviousness it's just sort of casually shown to us and you take it in um, and a- everyone is flawed um, James Gandolfini which is his final film role sadly is um, is we see him living with his sister and he's just kind of a put-upon almost a mob has been like you know could have been a contender sort of thing um, mm. tom hardy tom hardy's unreadable as whether whether he's just keeping his cards close to his chest if he is so, sort of simple-minded with maybe some like light learning difficulties or if he's just hiding another personality <laughs> and numi rapace or rapacha i don't know you know how do you say his name rapace rapacha i think it's i just always said rapace numi rapace is uh just a a very beaten down woman who is just deeply untrusting. And it was more the interplay between the characters that, that, I, that I really, really liked about it. The way that um, there's so many, like just because of this dog and the previous owner, how, how, how many, um, how sort of understated everything is, how, how many veiled threats there are and how Tom Hardy is just willing to just let, let just, wants the guy to go away so he can just have this dog and and then he finds out that it was a numi uh, rapaces ex ex um partner so he wonders if there's something going on there and then you wonder if james gandolfini's in on trying to raid his own bar so he can um uh, go off and just start new life elsewhere because he's kind of sort of lost lost control of this this whole situation and it's just full of like nice moments there's a there's a really there's a really nice scene what well, nice is probably the wrong word where and, and it doesn't need to be in the film it just gives a little bit of uh, um, depth to james gandolfini's character where he's like i think he's like making soup or having a coffee in his in his kitchen that he shares with his sister and they have this they share this dialogue about how the the father's clearly very ill and it's very expensive to keep him alive and he's effectively brain dead and she's saying you know it's it's sort of time to let go and james gandolfini is sort of saying you know oh, i i i can't i can if i want to but I, I i don't want to sort of thing and um it's this <laughs> this this sort of falseness of bravado from from a person he effectively thinks he used to be almost um mm. and yeah i just i was completely sucked into it and i 
I found the whole thing really understated, really mellow, really dialogue and character driven. And I was hips deep. And it is a film I will watch again with my eyes. And that is my film of the week, The Drop from 2014. And that is on Netflix. I need to watch this again because I, I remember I definitely reviewed it back in 2014 or wherever it came out. Um, and I remember liking it, but I haven't seen it since. But I'll dig out the screener and have another watch, I think. Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's intriguing then. Yeah. Um, I think that's probably in Tom Hardy's mumbling phase as well. Good. Oh, he was um, like, a, like a mofo. Do you know those films where we've talked about this before, where um, it, it, we, where you, you're watching a film and you think this, uh, what was it you said, that there's, this isn't the most interesting part part of these characters' lives. We're watching yeah. the wrong, we're watching the wrong film. It felt like this was a very understated version that nailed that. Like this is, right. you know, they work in a bar and this is this is a, a good night to be watching these events. Right. Okay. Um, how much longer do we have? Uh, I well, I I know we usually call it a, a night at uh, you know after two hours. I've mm. cut, cut out a load of my films. I'll do them next time because I really want to talk about Godfrey Ho. So I'm just going to do two more. Um, so like in okay. in one. In one, I could do his entire career in one if I wanted, but I'm going to do two in one. I can't wait to hear about him. I'm going to talk about my film of the week then. I have to. It's enough time has passed. So I'm going to talk about a film called The Vast of Night. Um, and this is on Prime. Um, now, it is the only film that I've talked about which isn't a horror, but it is all set at night and it does possibly involve aliens so there's a little bit of a connection there so this is set in 1950s new mexico and a young radio host and a uh, like a phone line operator in this small town they're kind of friends possibly more she starts hearing a strange possibly extraterrestrial sound through the phone line and she lets him know um uh, on his radio show and over the course of one night the pair um, investigate what could be happening with this sound they visit various oddball characters around the town they're basically trying to chase down the source of this sound which is becoming possibly um, the sound of visiting aliens it's an incredibly impressive debut feature from someone called Andrew Patterson it's made in 2019 and it was rejected by like 20 film festivals. It was finally uh, picked up by Amazon. Um, and it's seriously impressive when you consider that it was made for well under a million dollars. Um, and then you consider that part and it's just incredible. Like the film craft here is unbelievable. Like it's so stylish in the service of substance and performance like there's these really really lovely long takes throughout the film there's a 10 minute shot of this girl operating this very mechanical phone system um connecting to these various different characters and talking to them and uncovering little bits of the plot of the this kind of thickening plot at one point the camera exits her building and it like zooms down the street it passes through this really busy town hall where all this stuff's happening and it 
floats up through an upper window and then sinks to the ground again, passes through more streets to get across to the other side of town to this radio host in another building. And it's such a it's such a ridiculously virtuoso shot and it gives us but it's not just for the sake of it. It gives us an idea of the geography of the town and sort of tells us how the kind of distance between the two characters is really cool. It's some really fascinating editing in it. There's because there's a lot of storytelling in the film. There's a lot of like old folks telling abduction stories and things like that. And occasionally like someone will be telling a story and the screen will just simply fade to black for a while. Um, so that we can just listen to their voice and telling the story. It's such a simple and brilliant idea. It's a very heavily, heavily dialogue driven film, but the dialogue is so well observed and feels so much of its time and place. And the accents are so ridiculously strong uh, that it never gets boring. It's really, it's two really wonderful performances by the two main actors whose names are Sierra McCormick and Jake Horowitz. He manages to be very confident and forceful without coming across as obnoxious or bullying and she's very sweet natured without being submissive or cloying and I think a lot of that is down to the uh, excellent it's a very precise screenwriting I it possibly could be too gentle for some people I mean I find it very 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 charming and in in the same wheelhouse sci-fi ways as something like Close Encounters or Midnight Special or even possibly signs and i guess the radio station conceit um and the kind of one night thing it brings us back to a film like southbound but i think this is much more interesting and i watched it a couple of weeks ago possibly very maybe about three weeks ago now and i just can't stop thinking about it it's oh wow i would say it's in the same hidden gem category it's that same hidden gem feeling i got after watching computer chess or space station 76 oh right it's that level of like i can't stop thinking about it and just you know it's got this period setting and it obviously owes a lot to sci-fi of that period but i feel it felt genuinely new and original and apparently andrew patterson he's now made a revenge thriller set in the honeybee industry so Look forward to watching that as well. But this was magnificently good. It's called The Vast of Night. Just um, two things. One is that the Jake Horowitz's next film after this was a remake of Castle Freak, which we both really loved, the 1995 what? horror, produced by Barbara Crampton as well. So we need to keep our eye out for that. Oh, yes. Um, and the other thing is that I know, I know, because I've watched Space Station 76 and I've watched Computer Chess and I, I adore them as much as you do. But I know that when I say to Faye, I hope she can't even hear me now, I'm going to say Rupert's film of the week was a film called The Vast of Night, and I have to watch it. We have to watch it right now. We have to sit down and watch it right now. And it's going to end, and I'm going to sit there stunned and bewildered and just completely enamoured with what I've seen. And I'm going to look to my left, and Faye is going to have been asleep for over an hour. (laughs) And I cannot wait. And and that's that's when I know it's a good film. <laughs> I this is how like like weird like the kind of presence it has in my mind. I cannot remember if it's black and white or not. That's like the level that we're at now. Like I because it's so steeped in its period sort of thing and so well observed and so kind of dark and unusual looking anyway. Like it, it I, I'm not even sure it I 
pretty sure it's in colour, but I don't know. I get this feeling that it might be black and white. I'm not sure. It's so uh, weird. Where, where is this so everyone can watch it? It's on Prime. I mean, it was uh, Amazon picked it up and obviously put it on their channel. It means that it's. I don't think there's even like a Blu-ray of it or anything. It's just Prime, so it's pay. But yeah. yeah, it's an Amazon original. I'm gonna have to watch this with my feet. I'm gonna just have to like just look, stare upwards at the, at the night and just hold my bare feet out towards the screen and hope they can gather enough information to me to understand. What's <laughs> well, happening. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did, because like I just found it utterly engaging from the very beginning. Like there's this opening sequence, which I think again is a very long take. Um, so well directed, so many extras and stuff around. But the stuff he's talking about at the start, I have no idea what he's talking about at all. But it 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 conjures this character so well because because of the way he's acting, the way he does it with such confidence, and the way he's acting around people, it tells you all you need to know about the character without knowing what the hell he's talking about. So it's that kind of movie. I'm gonna. I know we're. we're punched on time so i'm going to move straight to my it, it would have been my backup this isn't just my film but this is like i said this these watching these films with my brother transvaal didn't just like make me think oh that was that was a really good use of my time they have we he's already bought another four films by this director for us to watch in one day for the next time i i, I i've never seen anything like it and it's it's completely gonna just alter the course of my trajectory with martial arts films do you remember a few months ago I watched I think it was called like Strike of the Panther and Curse of the Panther and I said the mm. first film the first film was like a bit of a hidden gem this silly hidden gem the second film is basically just a lot of footage from the first film and it's just total nonsense yeah, yeah I remember making the comparison with Maniac Cop yes okay you if you imagine that if you imagine that uh way of making films of just reusing footage I'd stretch it out over an entire decade of of a career. You have got Godfrey Ho, who is who is um, the the Chinese answer to Edward to the point that even he has used the pseudonym Ed Wu in some of his films he's directed. Um, this is a man, right, who makes these martial arts films, or, or they're always called Ninja, Ninja the Terminator, Ninja the Golden Force, uh, Ninja the Ginger Ninja, whatever, and he will get actors in there's an actor called richard harrison he'll bring in for this like uh, mid-80s kung fu flick and he'll tell richard harrison oh you just you know these are the fight scenes just do just do these these fight scenes and they're going to be in in two films no they're in 12 films he splits out this man's thing into 12 different yeah. films and what he does is he gets a lot of people filming badly dubbed scenes and he'll reuse those scenes in other films and just dub different um different scripts over the top i what my brother we put wow. on ninja drag Ninja Dragon first, and it came in. It, the opening scene is this really stilted ninja fight where people are just jumping, and then it'll freeze frame, and then when it like unfreezes, they're just in totally different positions, like outside. But it's supposed to be one fluid fight, so it's, it's really like off-putting. This really abrasive music that is literally taken from other Hollywood films, like The Thing. Um, Indiana Jones, he doesn't care what music he uses. I don't know how he got away with it. And then it's <laughs> it, it cuts in and you've got like these five these people with like um I thought I don't I thought they were at like a buffet or something and they were in this this like little room and they've got these flags that sort of show their nationalities in front of them, like a Germanic guy, American guy, an English guy, whatever. And then someone comes in, Richard Harrison, the ninja comes in, not in his ninja regalia, and says, Right, let's play some cards. And then he tells everyone he's an investment banker. And and they 
they bet by putting in like toy or homemade versions of the businesses they own into the pot. Like one guy obviously owns a used car lot, so he puts like a toy car in, and one guy obviously owns like a I don't know like a Chinese takeaway, so he puts like a box with like a Chinese symbol on the front in there. And then they play one round of cards. One guy wins it and says, "Right, that's it for me. Uh, I'll see you next week." And they were like, you bastard, Richard, you bastard. And I thought, <laughs> right, so one game of cards and you've won like an entire street's worth of, of stuff there. <laughs> he shoots up. And then, um, but then, for example, so then you've got martial arts scenes where someone will, um, the, the plot is totally nonsensical. Like it'll be, oh, you'll see Richard Harrison, who is a bloke in his like late 40s, early 50s, just go around and see a ninja attacking a woman and then he'll like sort of clap his hands there'll be a puff of smoke and he'll have teleported on top of a building and he's just got like this camo ninja suit on they'll get into like a really clunky fight and then he'll disappear as the police turn up but these scenes and then as this film goes on you realize that these scenes are not linked these are not these are just like really taken from different you know different films almost and um I can't even remember the plot of the first film, to be honest. The second film starts off and it's the same room, the same room they're sitting in at the start, like some of the same actors. And it's just Richard Harrison just um, just starts saying names. And this is something that doesn't stop. Right. He says, right. I, I, I've actually got I, I said this as a joke to my brother, but this this very much sums up the dialogue you get in a Godfrey Ho film where they just say names and it doesn't stop. And it's kind of meant to baffle you. So one second, let me just quickly um, grab this. He starts holding up pictures and passing it around this large table. And people are just looking at these pictures that are, that are pictures of people in the film in later scenes. Um, that we haven't seen yet like there's a picture of it like an asian guy looking at a toy telephone and you and you and then he'll say david trusts warren who is in love with betty but she doesn't know about linda or susan as for albert he's scared of bruce i've spoken to barry about peter but he's only interested in martin who's undercover in kevin's gang alan doesn't know about any of this i've checked with bertie and he confirmed that david hasn't even met dennis I'll infiltrate the gang as Gordon, but tell them I prefer to be called Jason, but only in earshot of anyone called Walter. That way, if James finds out, Barbara won't suspect that Helen and Emma, both Jim's wives. Hopefully we can then take out Steve, but only if Ronald suspects nothing. Right, call Dudley and let him know that we know to talk to Vincent about Bert. And and then the film will start. And you've got all these names flying around your head. And you're like, I haven't seen any of these people. It's just... Be and, and, yeah, I <laughs> there's no context for any of that that's amazing no. so and then and then what'll happen is you'll think about this about an undercover uh, like asian cop who's infiltrating a gang i got that but then the film will be a love triangle um that then doesn't follow the two people who are having an affair it'll follow his brother who joins a gang and gets into a protracted 25 minute fight in knee-high water on the beach um while people just shout his name from the shoreline and you think what's happening i don't know what's happening you know how when we watch Lost Boys, the amount of times they say, Michael, 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 Michael. It is not even a trailer's worth of time for the amount of times the word David is said in the in the film Ninja the Protector from 1986. It's just, honestly, Rupert, the, the films have to be seen to be believed. It's <laughs> it's a bewildering. I, I, one of the, one, the last thing I'll say, because I know it's late, one of this when we watched it and we were sitting there bewildered by the beauty of what we've just seen one of the trailers um 
on the film was like, oh, watch what Ninja the Golden Squad and Ninja the Terminator. So we clicked on Ninja the uh, Ninja the Golden Statue, I think it's called, or something like that. And it's like Ninja the Golden Statue, and it'll be a couple of punches. Ninja the Golden Statue, and then it's just like completely unrelated fight sequences. And I said, well, watch Ninja Terminator now. And you click on Ninja Terminator, and it's just two people outside a dojo, and one will say, I know you're here. You're here to take the golden statue and i thought you're literally using the different titles and like plot points and devices in in the same in two different trailers for two different films it's it doesn't care it doesn't <laughs> care um and i fully intend to watch all of his films because it's it, it's like um it's like being shot in the face with a blunderbuss that fires drunk rainbows uh it's fantastic and i've never seen anything like it as opposed to quote um where are these available are any of them available um... oh no these these are my brother picked these up on dvd from a charity shop these are like you know the two or four of films in one and he's bought yeah. another four and i can't wait i'd rather be watching those films than doing this podcast it's, not, there's nothing there's no, there can't be anything like these films ever and i will no. be happy to tell you more about them um but that's godfrey that's ho and that's ninja dragon and ninja the protector um and oh you're gonna say something then sorry how many how many are there do you know i mean um i'm just looking. how much footage did he did he create which he could then oh, uh, into a bunch of honestly the the, the fact that he just reused the, the same rooms the same actors and just changed the dialogue and and the scenes there's so many sex scenes in ninja the protector for no reason he's he teaches film he teaches film in tokyo as well um mm. so as a director he's got 150 directing credits um from like the early 80s it looks like his heyday was uh, the ninja films so the ninja films is one two three four five six seven eight nine this is about 20 films with the wooden ninja on the title in the 80s i just think he just filmed whatever he could and then didn't care just put them together so there was 80 minutes of footage and there's like there's a film the final fight in the second film ninja the protector is someone just getting to fight with a bloke we haven't seen since the start and they mm. have this awkward fight and then he throws a shuriken in him and it goes in his side and the guy drops to one knee and then the other and richard Harrison just walks past him and the credits roll um so what why were you okay. fighting and he and he's not dead by the way um it's amazing um so yeah he's he's i'm i'm gonna watch all 150 of these i think uh actually what what I, what I will ask you to do is go on to if you type in godfrey ho in imdb godfrey okay. ho and what was the film uh one second oh i i, I won't do it now because i know it's late but basically he did a he did a film and it was the cover is just a, a picture of robocop and if you could see the rope, we need to do this actually. I, I have to, so people who listen to this can can enjoy what I did. It just shows the quality. Um, so Godfrey Ho, RoboCop. Let me just see if this comes up. Robo Vampire. So Robo okay. Vampire, nineteen eighty. What year was nineteen ninety eight? Right. Okay. Nineteen eighty eight. Sorry. Eighty eight. Oh my. Yeah. The only thing so, is, he literally directed about thirty films. Robo Vampire, okay, in 1988. So, so don't scroll down, click on it until you can see the cover. I don't want everyone listening to I this. Robo Vampire, 1988. It is a drawn cover of Robocop, isn't it? Holding a zombie. It is, it's true. That is Robocop. It's a perfectly like chromey sheen, modern metallic version of Robocop, right? 
tapped down a few times to the first photo on the left, and that is the Robocop in the movie. Okay. <laughs> that. That is a dude in a suit. Looks like a stormtrooper. <laughs> but but the pectorals are just like pillows placed on his chest. Yeah, they're just like flaps, really, aren't they? It's you amazing. Keep your keys dangling under there. <laughs> so, Godfrey Ho is my director of the week. Um, I'm gonna set the Arkansas because I I know oh, that you need a you need a and the Arkansas for this week. Last week it was, uh, was it Carmen Ijogo to Barry Pepper. This week, it is from Vera Farmiga to Josh Hartnett. I didn't even get a chance to talk about the remake of Ron Turn. Steven Seagal's Exit Wounds or Hollywood Homicide. I'll pick those up next time. Right. Vera Farmer gets Josh Hartnett. Okay. That's fine. Well, at least they're yeah. vaguely the same generation. So, okay. You can go with that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you, are you going to carry on with your horror thrust? Um, well, I've got a few that I uh, left out of today's, including the Candyman remake slash sequel so we'll talk oh, wow. about that next time yeah. um yeah uh i am yeah, going to... I, I i don't think I, I don't think i'm going to be quite strict about just watching horror actually oh, um, nice. mm. i am keen so. to hear about the candy man honestly i missed out about five or six animated films as well the, we need a bit of a catch-up episode to be honest which is good because we're I both away we're both away on the Donna Party cabin this weekend, so we can do the Donna mm. Party episode with uh, Laszlo Buckets as a guest, a guest, and yeah. then we can then come back and just do a catch up maybe that week, and then we'll be up to speed again. Um, Sounds good. So yeah, it's um, everyone's got to get. I hope we had a good time. You got to get from uh, what was it? Uh, Vera Farmer to, yeah. to Josh Hartnett, and the films of the week are The Vast of Night, which I will watch, and uh, from me it was The Drop. Sorry, Tom watch again. Absolutely. And I urge everyone, if you like Kung Fu, if you can get hold of any Godfrey Hole film, just watch them. You'll be amazed. Just pop down it's... your local charity shop. And just, just just pick up any shelf full of DVDs and he'll be in there somewhere. Yeah. If it's yeah, if it says three and one, that's your man. <laughs> so Rupert, have a beautiful life living beyond the stars. I'll see you in the next one. <laughs>